Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Philippians chapter number 3 this morning. Philippians chapter number 3. I'm going to pick back up in our exposition of the book of Philippians. If you've not been with us, we've been trekking our way through verse by verse. And this morning we'll take as our text verses 1 through 3 of Philippians chapter number 3. In just a moment we'll pray over the text and ask God to help us to receive the word that he might light the path and encourage you to pray along with me as I pray. This is one of those uncomfortable texts, maybe an uncomfortable sermon as I prepared for it. But then again, I don't really ever preach comfortable sermons, so it should just slide right in like it usually does. From your perspective, it just seems a little more uncomfortable for me. And that my prayer is, is that it would be received in the light and intent with the temperament that the Apostle Paul desires for those at Philippi to receive it. My prayer is, is that we would receive it as well. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word pertaining to the sermon. And we'll read the first three verses and go to the Lord in prayer. Paul writes this to Philippi. In chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we come to you one more time. No doubt it will not be the last time. Father, we come to you asking for your help and aid in the moment. Father, for the next hour, as we pour over the scriptures, and that the word of God would be what it was designed to be, that is a lamp unto our feet, Father, and a light unto our path. We pray, Father, that by the help and aid of the very Spirit of God, that it would shine forth like the noonday sun, Father, and show us how to walk. Father, we pray along with that would just be the warmth of that light, the very warmth of Christ. Father, that it would be tempered with love and grace, yet at the same time not sacrificing holiness or righteousness, Father. But help us to balance all things. Father, help us to do it not only in pursuit of Christ and holiness, but also pursuit of Christ in, in love. So help us, Father, to pursue Him now. As we go to the text, Father, open it up to our eyes, open it up to our ears. Give us understanding that it may forever change us and prepare us for that eternal, great and glorious day as we'll stand before Him. May we stand, Father, as a bride spotless, insofar as we are able. May we, Father, stand in Christ. So let us labor in Him this moment, Father. For Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you can, feel free to be seated. As we went over in Sunday school this morning, it was hashed out just the heart of the New Testament church. And that heart of the New Testament church, or should be the heart of every New Testament church, um, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the very heart of the gospel of the grace of God is that amazing reality that an infinitely holy God has fully and truly pardoned guilty and wretched sinful men and women. In His Son, the Father has extended a perfect righteousness 
to them such that they're not only innocent, but we are found righteous in the very sight of God as we carry that same righteousness. And we are, and our salvation is procured 100% based on the activity of Jesus Christ who lived, who died, and who rose again on our behalf and in Christ alone. As, agree, as grievous as it is, it should be no surprise to us that, as soon, that no sooner that we're able to get that out, that there is someone somewhere that has and will continue to pervert that message. It should not be surprising in part because our Lord told us that that would happen. Acts chapter 17, um, beware of grievous wolves who will enter in. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. In our church, um, churches throughout the ages, churches in this community, and throughout every um, geographical place, if they're in Christ and they're true, and they carry that gospel with them, there is no doubt that men will enter in, that men will attack, and they will do it um, particularly by perverting that gospel. But it shouldn't be that surprising to us either because we know what we are by nature. We are by nature sinful men. It is our nature to pervert and to corrupt that which is good, that which is right, that which is holy. We've been doing it since our father Adam in the garden. And we will continue to do that um, as a humanity until our Lord sets it all right at his second coming. There's many perversions, but on a very basic level, these perversions can be boiled down to two. Two primary forms in every generation. The first perversion, perversion is that which we would call legalism. The second is, is what I'm going to call this morning lawlessness. Legalism, I know that we use that term and throw it around quite a bit, and, and in the right context, it's very appropriate the way that we use it today. But we often use it to speak of someone who is within the church that is very lawfully minded, um, even to the detriment, an extreme that, sh that is inappropriate. But when we're speaking of legalism here, we're not speaking of legalism like that. We're speaking of a total assault upon the gospel. We mean when we say legalism that according to it, men are told that something must be added to the work of Christ to complete the sinner's acceptance with God. That Christ's righteousness is the essence of it. Christ's righteousness is not enough. It is not enough simply to be received by faith. And in the apostolic age, this was very prevalent. And we'll see that even in our text this morning. And the second perversion is what I'm going to call lawlessness. Another, um, another man, a preacher, may stand up. Some Christians refer to this as antinomianism. Um, that's just a fancy word for lawlessness. <laughs> It literally means without law. Some refer to it as sensualism. Why? Because the fruit of lawlessness results in a sensual lifestyle often expressed in a pursuit of pleasure. Now, how is that an attack upon the gospel? I know it sounds simply like just world in operation, right? So there's another day. <laughs> I mean, with the lost. And that's true. But what we have here are a people who claim to be believers. And because of the grace that God has extended to them in Christ, they believe that they have liberty to do whatever, whenever, because by God's grace, He's forgiven them. It's under the blood. We have in this form of thinking, not in addition to the righteousness of Christ or acceptance in Him, 
But as one preacher said, we have the very logic of the devil, devil, ascribed to gospel thinking. You may think, is that really a thing? It seems, and it is, but it was really a thing in Paul's day. And it's probably really a thing in our day, the more that we were to search it out. For example, in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1, Paul, with a, in somewhat of a law-type mindset, the mindset of a lawyer, is arguing with an invisible man. In Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1, he says, What shall we say then? After he's expressed um, the gospel narrative, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, in the, in the, in the King James. Certainly not in the text that we have before us. He goes on to say, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In other words, some will conclude that if we're accepted solely on the basis of Christ, then our life and work is of essentially no consequence. Do what you want. You have the work of Christ to cover you. And on an even more extreme, Paul seems to be arguing that there were those in that day at Rome that believed that if grace abounded when they sinned, then they could sin all the more that grace would abound even more. That in legalism, you have a glorying in one's own righteousness. And in lawlessness, in respect to the gospel, antinomianism, sensualism, you have a glorying in one's sin. On the one hand, legalists glory in their own righteousness. On the other hand, antinomians glory in their sin. Both are produced because of a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. On the legalist hand, you have an undermining of the work of Christ and that it's insufficient. To produce a righteousness able to, to secure a person's salvation, we, we have to have more. And on the antinomian's hand, we have an, a gospel that's unable to produce in the life of a believer, the works, and that God requires with that conversion. Now, what in the world does that have to do with this text? <laughs> in this portion of the letter, Paul's going to make a transition. And he's going to set his theological sights on two great errors, these two great errors. In verses 1 through 14, particularly the verses that we're going to handle today, uh, and an expression of that, application of that, um, following to 14, and then the error of antinomianism in verses 15 to the end of the chapter. And that's what we're going to deal with, at least in part, today. Let me begin by asking a question. Um, What is your perception? What is your understanding? What is your attitude? With regard to men like that. What should our response be. To men. Or women in fact. Or churches. Who commit such crimes. And crimes they are. What was Jesus' response? How did Paul handle it? What is your response? What should our response as a church be. To such handlings of the gospel. Should it be let go and let God? Should it be let bygones be bygones? Should it not really ruffle our feathers? Or should it be something at the core which does ruffle our feathers? Why? Because no man has a right to tinkle with the gospel. I'm not sure what you think. Maybe you're not sure what I think. But today let's see what Paul thinks. Today maybe you'll be surprised by it. Maybe not. And then we'll ask the question, is this how we are to handle it? So Paul takes it up as his task to deal with these great errors as a shepherd of men's souls. 
But he begins with a, just a piece of spiritual advice, and I just want to make a few notes here in verse number 1 and give it as a precursor to that great warning in verse number, in verse number 2. Verse, in chapter 3 and verse number 1, Paul transitions with just a piece of spiritual advice. And as I said, just a note on this transition. Verse, or chapter 3 and verse number 1, we see the word finally. Um, or at least that's how it's translated in the New King James, the King James, and the ESV. But it's not as if he's saying his goodbye or giving a benediction here. No, the word here, it can also be translated furthermore, in addition to, and actually the CSB translates it in that spirit um, with the words of in, in addition. And it can be used as a pivot point for another topic in the same letter, and that's exactly what you see here. Paul's not really closing it down. He's not moving. He, he's, he's just simply moving on to another issue, one in which actually is, is of great concern. And so we too, in our mind and thinking, and I know that some of you haven't been here with us um, as we've labored through the, the, the epistle here that we have, the letter, um, but in chapters 1 and chapters 2, Paul's dealt with so much. Um, and he's actually, in chapter 2, reached the heights of heaven. Um, as he's explained the gospel, he's, he's, he's labored to put Christ before us, and he's expressed love to Philippi, love to Timothy, love to Epaphroditus. And it's in this moment in the chapter, that's why the division was placed here by men who placed the verse um, divisions and the chapter divisions, placed it in this point um, possibly, because here we have a transition of thought. But I also want to just note, that very important, that it doesn't mean that God has left, or that, 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 that Paul has left his loving temperament or attitude and now turned to hate. I want you to know that what we find before us too is an expression of love. An expression of love to God and an expression of love to the church at, at Philippi. So he begins with the transition with what seems to be a general command. And he says these words, Rejoice in the Lord, my brethren. Finally, my brethren, those whom are in Christ, in Christ with me, those whom I know and love, have labored with, um, and God has used to birth the church there at Philippi. Um, first command, he says, in this portion of Scripture, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, this shouldn't be anything to those that have been with us. This isn't something foreign. It's not a foreign idea. This is the temperament of the entirety of the letter. Actually, this is the sixth time Paul says this. In some iteration or reiteration, um, he recapitulates, he, he, he re-emphasizes um, the joy that they are to have in the Lord. And I'll just say very quickly and briefly, that is important to note. And it's important to note that this too is a command. That you and I will stand before the throne of God one day and be judged according to our works, our labors. And one command that you'll be judged according to is, did you rejoice when I told you to rejoice? Unbelievers will stand before God. And one of the criteria by which they will be judged on is the reality that they did not rejoice in God. They did not find delight in Him. And the great object of the delight of throughout the ages, He who has all majesty, beauty, and glory, and whom men of every age, nation, tribe, and tongue should delight in, they do not. And that's one of the great crimes of all the ages. That joy is to be that characteristic attribute, at least one of them, of the people of God. John 15, the very joy of Christ, Christ gives to His people, and it is cultivated in a life of abiding in Christ and in obedience to His commands. And Paul reemphasizes it to these people here. That's a portion of his spiritual advice. And then Paul goes on to issue an exhortation to the church at Philippi um, to readily receive a reminder from him. 
That's the second piece of spiritual advice. He says in verse 1, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, guess what? It's safe. It's safe. Paul sees it necessary for the benefit of the church to actually um, to contribute to their spiritual safety that he reminds them of something. Now, there's some debate as to what the advice really is. Maybe it was rejoice in the Lord, and it may be. It may be because he's already mentioned five times. I'm going to remind you again. But it also may be rejoice in the Lord because of what he's about to tell them. And I'm actually convinced um, that that which he's going to remind them of is, is probably um, this warning that he's going to give. This warning is probably not the first time that they had heard of it. Paul deals with these um, Judaizers, these heretical false teachers on more than one account. Um, we see them pop up in Acts chapter 15. We see them um, just just displayed... Um, in depth in the book of Galatians as Paul treats um, the issue there. And it seems that he is trying to perk up their ears and he's trying to remind them of something, possibly this warning, and even reminding them, exhorting them to protect their joy in the face of the enemy. That oftentimes is where we lose it. That oftentimes is where it wanes. It flees. It flees with our fear and Paul may be very well reminding them to rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he understands um, the fight that is ahead of them. So he gives to them a sanctified reminder. And that's our first point, sanctified reminders. And I could probably cover the entirety of the first verse. He says, I'm not grieved, I'm not grieved to write to you the same thing. It's not a burden. I'm not troubled. And as for you, I do it. Why? Because it's a caution for your spiritual safety. It's good for you. It's good for you. Now, why does he preface a statement like that? It might be, we might conclude that it's because it's a burden for some to have to repeat themselves. And it might be because there are those who don't see the great benefit of being reminded. They see it as an offense. Um, but what people don't realize is that, that it's not an offense. It's not a slight against someone. It's not as if we're saying, as Paul is coming and saying, I'm reminding you of this because you didn't listen. It's not as if he's coming and saying, I'm reminding you this because clearly your ears weren't perked up in the moment. Um, because you're dumb. You can't retain everything at this time. So I know that I have to give it to you in bits and pieces. I mean, it's not. And, and, and then there are those who, who just hate to be reminded as if it's an offense, as if they're treating them as a child. And that's not the reality at all. Have you ever walked through the scriptures? Have you ever noticed that it seems like you'll be reading one epistle and it's like you've heard that before? That much of the teaching throughout Scripture is given via repetition. It's constant reminders. Paul's like this. You know, Paul, it'll be like you're reading the book of Ephesians and you're thinking, man, that just sounds like Colossians. I just read that the other day. You know why? Because it is. <laughs> it's practically the same book to two different churches with some minor variations. You read Romans chapter 12 and you're like, man, that sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 12. Why? Because it does. You know, Paul is constantly reminding the people of God. Why? Because there is a true benefit to hearing it over and over and over again. Why? Because each time that you hear it, the roots can go deeper. 
Your understanding is broadened. Your God is bigger. Your worship is higher. He increases and you decrease. You're humbled and He's exalted. And it's amazing and it's wonderful. It's joy producing and it's strengthening and invigorating as you commune with God. You know, even going through this book, I don't know how many of you said, you know, at a previous church we went through the book of Philippians, but now it's just fresh and new. God's opened it up. It's not because the preacher is, is fancy or able or capable. It's because God meets you in the text. And God continues to re-enliven those things. So I would just, at this initial portion, I would just simply exhort and, and, and encourage you and to be constantly giving yourself over to the same things, the right things, the good things. Why? Because with each reminder, um, God is able to work and to do. You know, that we're not to be spiritual Athenians, Acts chapter 17, 21, who are always looking for a new thing. You know? We are to be those who cling to the old paths, um, those who cling to that which is substance, that which is deep, not that which is shallow, not that which is ever-changing with the methods of the world. But Paul is reminding them of something so important here. Um, he deems it so important that he prefaces it. Why? Because he knows that there may be some ears and hearts there that aren't ready to receive it. They're not going to receive it well. Why, Paul, you already told us that. I need to tell you it again. You need to understand the gravity of the situation. You need to understand the warning, the danger that is ever before you, and the glory that is in Christ. So we see the spiritual advice or sanctified reminder in verse 1. In verse 2, we see a serious warning. This is where we'll spend most of our time. Uh, verse 3, we'll touch on, but I'm going to give a, a sermon next week to that, and the marks of a believer. So we'll just kind of... Um, touch on that this morning, but give most of our time to, to verse number 2. We see in this verse 2, Paul, Paul's exhortation transitioned to a serious warning about a particular group of people. This particular group of people was known to the apostle and no doubt known to the church at Philippi. This group is a group that we're going to call the Judaizers. And why? Because this is what history is referred to them as. Boys and girls, the Judaizers were just a group of people that were Jewish Christians they could have either been born Jewish, or they could have um, became part of this group, even though that they weren't Jewish, who regarded the Levitical laws of the Old Testament as still binding on all Christians, particularly in relationship for their soul's salvation. So that was a lot. Like, what do you mean? What I mean is, is that they're clinging to the Old Testament laws because they think that they need to perform those to be saved. That Christ's work is not enough. There's no clear evidence that these people were here at Philippi working and laboring. Um, hence the warning. Paul sees this theological error so great that even though they're probably not within the camp, that, they, that, it, that it should be such a priority within the church of God there at Philippi to guard their joy and the glory and the, 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 the propagation of the gospel, that it is something that should be ever before their thinking. Thus he reminds them. And he sees it rampant throughout the churches, no doubt. As I said earlier, Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1, um, there's a council that's brought together. Why? Because some are arguing that circumcision is necessary for salvation. Um, the, the book of Galatians is just a scathing rebuke. Those churches at Galatia, um, throughout Galatia, that had started off well by the power of the Spirit of God and had given themselves over to return to the works of the law. And the danger of such people and such groups lie both in their method as well as their message. 
Ultimately, the message is what damns and condemns. But their method is such that it's deceitful nature that it's often hard to identify. Um, this week I learned a new term. And spiritual cuckoos. <laughs> and that's not, to, uh, that's not to say anything derogatory about these people, although there's many that truly are cuckoo. Um, but a cuckoo bird is one that uniquely is known for its instinctual practices, that, that is, which one of them is not building its own nest. But it likes to take up residence in another's nest and even lay eggs. They'll come home, the one bird will come home one day and there's someone else in the nest. And they've laid an egg where an egg is there and they don't know where it comes from. In a similar manner, false teachers are like spiritual cuckoos. Instead of building their own nests from the ground up, they'll often find an already existing nest of believers, an established church, and there the Judaizers would root in and propagate their heresy and they would do it by giving every indication that they were believers as well. Um, they would just come in, they would take the trappings of the religion, they would look like Christians, um, but there was one thing that they would try to try to, to, to push through. The danger of that is that one thing Paul tells us is enough to nullify the gospel altogether. The danger initially comes not from total transformation or glaring discrepancies, but in minor alterations to vital things. So they don't come to overthrow the whole system. They don't come say you have to abandon Christ. They don't come and say get rid of that gospel. They don't come and say we need to overthrow everything. Jesus is not divine. They don't come and say, you know, we don't believe in the authority or the inspiration of the Scriptures. They come and say, have you ever considered, you know? I mean, the Old Testament is just the framework and the ground of the New Testament. The Jews, we shouldn't abandon them. Have you ever considered, you know, circumcision is still necessary? You know, the conversations to what extent? And the danger of that is, is that that one little thing, Paul argues, is enough to destroy it all. Do you know that it doesn't actually take much to kill a person? You don't have to drop a vehicle on their face or set them on fire. That if you nick the right artery, the smallest incision in the right place, just a tablespoon of the right liquid um, can destroy a person's humanity, can take away the very breath of their life. All it takes is precision of the enemy, and the enemy knows exactly how to be precise. And what the Judaizers have done was that they came into the New Testament church and they argued that circumcision, this one little thing, um, which was a part of their heritage anyway, was still necessary to be combined with Christianity. And Paul argues that actually that totally nullifies the gospel. Before long, they're actually pushing, that's just a gateway drug, that's just an entrance through the door. They're actually pushing um, the whole... Um, burden of the Old Testament law, bringing back the festivals and the feasts, not in a way of celebration of Christ's work um, or a cultural um, nuance that is wise, but in all reality um, that is necessary for salvation. And in that, they'd undermine the most fundamental realities of the Christian faith, Jesus Christ alone. And in that one thing, going to the molecular level, the DNA, Imagine a bride, you know, a human. It's not as if, you know, the Judaizers were coming and trying to change the hair or the dress or some external feature. No, they're actually going to the DNA and changing the very, the very thing which makes it what it is. And that's what the Judaizers are doing. 
They're going in, and it's not just some trapping on the external. It's not the braiding of hair. It's not um, the, the dress within the church. It's not music styles. It's not administrative methods. It's not this or that. It's not secondary or tertiary issues. And they're actually going in and changing the DNA of what makes the church the church and in, 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 in supplying them and supplanting them with a totally different gospel. And it's of the devil. It doesn't save. It's deceitful. And it's... Wicked. I mean, that's what Paul is arguing here. Thus, Paul issues a serious warning. A shot across the bow. And he does it first. We see the essence of this warning um, with a simple word in verse number 2. Given in a cascade of of repetition. Beware. He doesn't say it once. He says it three times. Beware, beware, beware. It's a general word for look, but when it's used here... It speaks not only of just looking with a physical eye, but paying attention to the eyes um, as if they were in the soul. They're to be alert, spiritually on watch, watching for these maladies to enter in to even their small, precious, God-glorifying fellowship. It's a command, it's an imperative It is to be continually on watch. There's pressure upon them to keep their eyes out. Um, to guard the doors, to guard the pulpit, to guard the lectern, to be loving, yes, to preach the gospel and to be welcoming, yes. But at the same time, their love for the fellowship and their love for God would push them to set up barriers to guard the gospel of Christ. Why? Because if the gospel's lost, it's all lost. And secondly, the essence of this warning can be seen in Paul's threefold description of these men. And Paul pulls no punches, he holds no punches. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. We may have a translation that says the concision. I think the King James translates it the concision. All three, not speaking of three different groups, but three identifying marks of one particular group. Paul wants them to know the seriousness and the danger that is ever before them. That they may guard against it. So number one, he calls them dogs. Again, this is where it gets uncomfortable, you know, because modern day preaching, even my own self feels somewhat uncomfortable with this. And there's a number of reasons for that. My own natural disposition, probably the way that um, the culture has, has, has kind of groomed us to think about one another. Um, but Paul holds no punches. Um, he calls them, number one, dogs. In the context of the New Testament culture, dogs are not like we are today. I mean, they're, they're not rulers of the home. They're not man's best friend. I mean, they're not, you know, wearing sweater vests and playing with the most more expensive toys than my kids have. They're not, you know, New Testament dogs are not the dogs that we know today. Um, yeah, yeah, not Old Testament dogs either. <laughs> um, the, the Gentile world would have actually um, understood this. Um, as a connotation of a wild pack of dogs. Very, um, very akin to what, the way we think of roaming wolves. Um, they, were, they, they would eat, they would consume whatever they could get their paws on. You wouldn't find them in houses. They weren't domesticated animals. They weren't domesticated pets. Um, they would even become a threat at times to human beings. It's not someone, you know, when you, you went down the road, and you it's not one that you would let your little one go, go pet. Why? Because these, these, these um, scavengers were on the pursuit of food. And if you weren't careful, you may become their meal at that time. 
So for the Gentile mind, and when I use Gentile, I mean uh, everyone who's not a Jew. So everyone outside of the Jewish realm would have, uh, would have seen this um, reference to dog as a ravenous scoundrel or an animal that could not be tamed and would be a threat to whomever it encountered. I mean, that's what Paul is trying to communicate here to them. But even more than that, we're talking about Judaizers, or those who, um, who, who are familiar or have grown up in or at least familiar with Old Testament um, realities. And for the Jew, especially the apostate Jew, those in the New Testament who have abandoned true Judaism and abandoned God, um, a dog was not only a ravenous scoundrel, or not, but an unclean animal. It would have been considered unholy, meaning that apostate Jews actually looked at dogs as if they were cursed by God. I mean, it was a derogatory term. Dogs were regarded by Jews as the most despised, one Jew says, insolent and miserable of creatures. And they were unclean. They were cursed by God. And actually, John uses this in Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, to speak of those who are outside of Christ. And he labels and those who are outside of the blessings of God um, as dogs. And he accompanies them with sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. It very well may be here that he's referring to those false teachers, those Judaizers who are within the camp, who are supplanting, deceiving, and destroying the gospel message within the local church. That they are murderers. Soul murderers. Um, so these pulling no, no punches here. So Paul in this verse turns the tables and he's actually calling these men, pointing their finger and saying, you're unholy, you're apart from God, you need to repent. You're not the people of God. And in just a minute, Paul will actually continue to unfold their perilous state as he, as he marks out the true people of God. Not in a, not in a pride for an arrogant way, in a way to, to, to delineate themselves from those people. And he's saying simply, you're not the same. You see, the Judaizers are coming, and what they're saying is, is that we are the people of God. And you're going to see that actually in that third identifying um, term there, that third identifier, the concision. Now, in the original, maybe in the King James, and even in the original, even in the New King James, you can kind of see the play on words that Paul's using here. He doesn't refer to them as the false circumcision. He doesn't refer to them as the circumcision at all. You see, they referred to themselves as the circumcision. They believed that they had the covenant blessings of God, the promises of God from Genesis chapter number 17. That the circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and all those who were in Abraham by faith. They too could trust in the promises with God and they were in relationship with God. But in the New Testament, they had turned that on its head and now they had believed simply by birth and ethnicity because they could trace their lineage back to Abraham um, by their DNA, as it were, that they were the true people of God. You know what Paul's going to say? Paul's going to say no. This is what he's saying in this passage of Scripture. He's saying they're not the true circumcision. They're, they're the concision. And what that is, is it's a word that could be translated the mutilators. Um, it's, a, it's a term, he, he, again, he's pulling no punches. It means butchers. You're not only the butcherers of men's flesh, uh, but you're the butcherers of men's souls. They're not only mutilators of the flesh, but they're mutilators of men's souls. And, they, and, the, and their aim is to take them to hell with their works righteousness. It's a false gospel. And Paul is warning these people um, for them. 
I'm not only number three, we talked about the last one, but to back up in the sandwich there's evil workers. Paul then moves from symbolic language and a play on words, and he actually just, just plainly speaks. These men are evil. These men are evil workers. Know this, that these men are busy. These men are diligent. These men are ardent. They're not sitting on the sideline lazily with their feet up. They're not indifferent. They're not apathetic. They're working to that end. Laboring with sweat for their cause. And what characterizes their work is this. It's evil. It's darkness. It's of Satan himself. It's at the very opposition of all that God stands for. Their aim is to destroy the church. They're a demolition crew seeking to bring it to the ground. And they're going to do it with the utmost subtle precision. Like a surgeon um, commissioned by Satan himself to come in. To take on all the trappings of Christianity. And they're going to do it. And they're going to work hard at it. Um, They like their spiritual forefathers, the Pharisees. They will span land and sea to make a proselyte. They're no doubt full of zeal and zealous. Paul is clear. Wherever they work, it's not of God. And everything they work for results in evil. This is the necessity of the reminder. Let's be on your guard. Watch out. Take them seriously. They're not brothers. They're not of you. They're not the true circumcision. And he goes on to actually delineate and distinguish that. He says in verse number 3, he gives spiritual character of those that truly are. Verse number 3, For we are the circumcision, who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul, at this point, for the purpose of defining those that are dangerous and distinguishing um, what to look for, contrasts the concision with the true circumcision. He, in essence, here is marking them out as unbelievers. Why? Because, again, they have a false gospel. And just as Paul gives three marks of the mutilators, he now gives three marks of the true circumcision, the true church. What are those three marks? Those who worship God in the Spirit. Those who glory or rejoice in God. And those who have no confidence in the flesh. And again, like just a skilled surgeon, with precision, Paul is pointing to actually facets of the the false circumcision, the concision, the mutilators, and he is directly contrasting them with what true circumcision is. That that, that true circumcision, that that sign that God gave in in Genesis chapter number 17 was a sign of the true circumcision, that the old heart would be cast off, it would be cut away, the old man would die in Christ Jesus under the wrath of God, and you'd be given a new righteousness, a new heart, and these are evidences of that new heart, that you worship God in the Spirit. And the contrast is, the point is, is that they don't. They worship Him according to the letter of the law, but not the Spirit. Paul makes this argument elsewhere. These men are just steeped in in dotting the I's and crossing their T's. They don't understand the intent of the law at all. But you do. You do. Number two, they rejoice in God. Instead of glorying in their works like the false circumcision. They rejoice in Christ. You're going to see that in just a moment. Now, this is one of the great, great um, attributes or characteristics of this passage of Scripture. That Paul, in his warning of these people, it's actually going to turn into a platform in which Paul exalts Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has no confidence in the flesh. 
He's actually going to expound that phrase in verse number 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. You know, Paul was a man who understands. He's not a man who's removed sitting in an ivory tower somewhere with a theological degree and doesn't understand men where the rubber meets the road. Actually, Paul is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Jew among Jews. And he says that, I was boys and girls, I was at the top of the class. If anybody was going to earn righteousness according to the law, then I was the guy. You know? But it was all a, a pile of worthlessness at the end of it. All the best righteousness that I had to give to God was nothing in His sight. The only thing that I have to glory in is in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. That these are the marks of a true believer. These are the marks of, a, of the true circumcision. That the circumcision is not only external, but the true Jew is one who has been circumcised in the heart. He's been changed. He has new desires. He has the very Spirit of God in him. And he worships the Spirit. Um, he worships God according to the Spirit. And the spiritual intent of the law. That was uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, to some extent. Especially for those who may be new to Christianity. You hear a message of hate. That's not hate at all. Um, Paul is not casting stones in arrogance or pride. This is not the apostle who's trying to be edgy or cute in front of his peers. Paul's not puffing his chest out or flexing his arm as if he is better than anyone else or he's not trying to impress the ladies. This is a man so committed to the gospel of God because the grace he's received that produced and produced in him creates in him, cultivates him in a holy anger and disdain for anyone that would corrupt such a glorious reality. And this is a man who desires to guard the gospel of God at all costs. Why? Because first, God is worthy. Number two, because God was gracious to him. Experientially. Not only theologically is God worthy, but experientially, Paul is a benefit, a benefactor, eh? one who has received the benefits of such glorious realities. And he sees the danger, the harm, and the destruction that happens to men and to God when that is tainted with. This is theologically rich, no doubt. This ex exhortation, too, is born out of the experience of the apostle. A man unconverted and zealous for God, against God in origin. A persecutor of Christians. A man who understands, if anybody understands self-righteousness, if anybody understands the legalist heart, who sat at the front of the class, valedictorian of Judaism. It's Paul. And because of that, you might say rightly that he has a hatred for self-righteousness in his heart. Why? Because he viewed himself at that time uh, as the chiefest of sinners. And this might be Paul's chiefest sin. And he sees it running rampant. Thus, he doesn't take the modern day approach, sit around these men and say... Where can we come to terms on this? You know? He calls it what it is. Why? Because they don't need to hear that. They don't need to hear we to compromise. They don't need to hear... Um, they need to hear it plainly. So his holy indignation is displayed in a righteous anger. Not born out of self-righteousness, pride, or arrogance. Or a superiority complex. But out of a true humility and an understanding of the grace of God. Not only what God is worthy of, but also what 
man's greatest need is. And what we have here are men who are turning that on both ends, upon their head, and making double children of hell. That's the difficulty of the text. And this is a text that we have to grapple with, right? As we move to application, just a few things. Let us grapple with it. I mean, Paul calls them dogs. Was he right? Was he wrong? Are we to follow in this example? Let me give you a few things. First, I would say, we are to receive and to grapple with the reality of this text. As Paul, with great humility of heart, and not as a manifestation of pride. If you are anything this today, if you are in Christ, you are only there because of the grace of God. Not because of your self-righteousness. You're not going to stand up against the Judaizers as if you're better than them. You're not. You come from the same stock, and if it wasn't for God's grace, you would still be there. We're not going to handle this with a manifestation of pride. This is not arrogance. Second, I would say that with with that great humility and love, I would say that great humility and love does not preclude or prohibit plain speech and clear proclamation, particularly in dire matters. What I mean by that is, is that, that great the that, that person who has humble and has love in their heart doesn't mean that they should never use plain speech and call it like it is, especially when men's souls are at stake. Third, because if this is true, souls are at stake. Thus, diligent watchfulness meticulous care, plain speech with respect to well-defined vital errors is of no small importance as it relates to our Christian duty and responsibility, particularly in the church. So if if this is true, and there are men out there with the utmost precision who are seeking to destroy the gospel, by infiltrating churches in the most deceitful ways, and this is a matter of church, um, of the church, that should be that we should give ourselves to diligently. We should be watchful. What do I mean by all of that? I mean that if Paul is a right and true expression of the method and manner in which we're to follow, then we too should this morning see the heinous crime that men like these commit against not only humanity, but a holy God. And with great humility and love, mark out, refuse fellowship with, rebuke in our midst if necessary, and call to faith and repentance, all for the sake of their own souls. We too are plainly warned those under our care, even in the absence of it, because of the dangers of it, of the eternal eternal and imminent danger that we're in, if we entertain such evils and evil men. That there is a holy harshness and a righteous anger that is not inconsistent with a holy love and gentleness, but is actually born out of it. Listen, you will not hate if you do not truly love. And you will never truly love unless it's accord with something that you truly hate. Some may argue, man, Paul sounds unbelievably harsh. You know, like what he just said. 
But if they read the entire book, they, and, they, and when they read the entire book, they may say, man, it even sounds inconsistent. Right? Like what he just wrote sounds altogether different than what he's writing now. After all, he's the author of what I just argued to be the greatest expression of eternal love, not only in Christ, but in one another. And when you read Philippians 2, particularly in correlation with Philippians 1, what you read is one of the most loving, uh, expressively loving men all throughout the New Testament. This is the most affectionate letter that Paul has. And and he extends that and expresses that in a whole host of ways, probably in the greatest manifestation in the, the the, the verses that are just previous to us. Not only does he give us Christ and tell us of the love that Christ has such that he's willing to give his own self, but Paul says that if it comes to it, I'll be happy to be a drink offering poured out upon the sacrifice of your faith. And if my life is required, then so be it. You know, and you just see the concern that he has for Philippi such that he'll even render resources that he needs in men like uh, Timothy and, and, and Epaphroditus and give those over. Why? Because of the love that he has for those at Philippi. And then you see just the concern for Timothy and a concern for Epaphroditus. And you just see them entering in one to another into weeping with one another and rejoicing with one another. And you just see the great, one of the great expressions of love that we have um, in Philippians chapter number 2. So what is this? Is this something other than that? Has he now just totally pivoted not only in love but to hate? Or is this too love? And I would argue that this too is an expression of love, that there is a true concern, that true concern that he has for Philippi in chapter number two just expresses itself um, in a different manner in chapter number three. Now he's guarding that love by guarding the people of God. How do you reconcile these things? They may ask, the skeptic might ask, with your disdain of these men. Is it not prideful? Is it not arrogant? Is it not unloving and hateful to say such things? I would say no, brothers and sisters. It is actually humility and love, not only for Christ and His gospel, but out of a true love and concern for others that compel us to say such things. Of love and concern in one sentence, and such things of disdain in the other. Why? Because these are not polar opposites and at odds with one another, but actually are born out of one another. Maybe this will help you understand. Listen, the same love, for example, the same love that provokes me to work, to labor, to give, to invest, to teach, to provide for, and to dote affectionately of all my daughters, is the same love that will provoke me to lock the doors at night. And sometimes to get back up in the middle of the night and remind myself that those doors are locked. That the essence of the comfort that it brings to me is not in the brute fact that the doors are locked, but in knowing that the life of my daughters are safe. In the same vein, I'm compelled to teach them what the enemy looks like and what enemies to look out for. I'm compelled to disciple them and what men to look for one day and even to be on guard for what men they may make relationships with. I'm compelled to be the man that honors God so that they too may see what a godly man should look like. It is actually my love for them that causes me to mark out such evils in this world and to even protect them from it. It is my love that provokes that. There was a time in my life I had a general disdain for immorality, such as pedophilia and rapists. As long as I can remember, I always knew that it was wrong. When I had children, 
Talk about God heightening a sense of awareness. I can remember working at a hospital in Pikeville years ago, sitting down in a hotel room watching a true crime reality TV show, and I'd encourage you not to, (laughs) you know. Um, That my hatred for such men arose. As I listened to the account of a brutal crime against a five-year-old, and all that I could see in my mind was the face of my daughter. And I thought, I've got to go home. And I cannot stay. And it compelled me to go home. It compelled me to find a new job. It moved me to love and to protect them in a way that I had not before. It's probably one of the reasons that we support Compassionate Hope Foundation to this day, an organization that rescues abused and abandoned little boys and girls who are subject um, to the abuses at the hands of sinful men. As much as I hate the thought of them being in their hands, I love the thought of them entering into the gates of people who will receive them in Christ and raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I have no problem calling out such men and what they are. Rapists, pedophiles, the scoundrels of the earth. I will, use, I will not use their preferred pronouns, chronophilia, infantophilia, or minor attracted persons. I will not give them a moment of credence or pity for their neurodevelopmental issues. Brothers and sisters, it's a sin that must be repented of, not a biological condition that needs medication. And I can remember when I started pastoring a church. I had a general disdain as a young man for false teachers. But God heightened it when He gave me a flock of my own to care for and to labor after. I can remember more than eight years ago being in a church, sitting on a pew, you know, like those aren't battles that I'm going to fight. You know? Um... But when God gives you something to care for, when God places upon you a certain responsibility, the Scriptures become so much more clear. The weight um, and the gravitas of what you are called to do in some ways are, are heightened such that now that God has given you a love for this thing, then it must be protected at all costs. So men who used to be just just um, pests in a pulpit now have become, in my mind and thinking, the murderer of men's souls. That's what we have. Men out there today that are the murder, mutilators of men's souls. And like a pedophile who lures a child with sweet words and affectionate ploys, they pull multitudes in with their pastoral demeanors and their crafty strategies. They hide the true gospel behind the means of grace that God has provided to reveal himself and with all the religious regalia of Christianity um, so, so that they think that it is what it is and they've deceived droves in the most subtle of ways and they are evil workers. They say things like, oh, you know, baptism is necessary for salvation or this and that. You know, you, you, we believe all the same stuff, but have you considered this? They're mutilators, they're evil workers, they're dogs. Now we must make a caveat. We're not saying this of every single individual in the world. That's not like us. We understand that there are those within these movements that are uninformed, ill-informed, young believers, and deceived with the information. And God's truly working. We're not talking about going out and calling every, every person that's not a believer a dog. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that this is probably a rare occurrence. What we're talking about here is the interaction uh, not as weaker and stronger brethren arguing over and debating secondary and tertiary issues. What we're talking about here are those men who are in the game of religion for whatever reason with full knowledge of what they're doing and leading men and women astray. And they are to be avoided at all costs. 
So when I talk to a Jehovah Witness, I don't come out of the gate swinging. <laughs> you know, it's wise and loving to be patient, ask questions, provoke thought. Most of the men that you'll talk to are 17, 18, 19 year old men who don't know what they believe anyway. You know, they've been taught this. They've been deceived. Um, you to be loving and to be patient and to walk with them and try to labor with them as long as it takes. Why? Because God did that with you. You know? And you're to love them in that manner. But at the moment in the conversation, you know, whenever I, I believe that a, whenever, when a man in full knowledge has rejected the light of God's grace in, in creation, conscience, as well as in the Scriptures, and he is seeking to supplant men, you better know that my demeanor will change. That when a Jehovah Witness comes to my door, that's where they stop in my neighborhood. <laughs> if I have anything to do with it, they will not go further to poison the souls of men in anywhere close to me. Say, man, that's harsh, really? What if you knew that a door-to-door salesman on a doomsday suicide mission was selling baked goods with cyanide in them? When you figured out what they were doing, would you simply close your eyes and say, well, cyanide's not for me, but, you know... We'll let everybody else choose for themselves. Everyone has their own taste. It's their choice. Have a good day. No. The moral thing to do, the right thing to do, would be to stand in the gap for those who are in your neighborhood, your loved ones, to do the care. Why? To prevent destruction, not only of their body, but, but, but spiritually of their souls. What we have are men going around leading people astray with that intention. And sometimes it's essential to paint that air in the most graphic and plain colors. How does Paul instruct them? He doesn't say, Philippians, look out for these dear misguided men. He says, beware of the dogs. He said, man, I still am not convinced. This is how Paul handled it. This isn't only how Paul handled it, this is how Jesus handled them. Again, not every man, not all unbelievers, but those who were particularly in spiritual places of leadership that were leading men astray. Jesus is known to have um, spoken in Matthew 17 of ravenous wolves. He called them whited sepulchers. He called them children of hell. He called them the blind leading the blind. He said, you vipers. He said, you are of your father the devil and you're just like them. He doesn't say that to the woman at the well. He doesn't say that to the Roman centurion. Why? Because these are genuine uh, men and women who are, who are being drawn by God. But, but, but when they enter into a place of leadership and, they are being, um, and they are, they're leading others astray, Paul and Jesus and James and James chapter number 5 are quick to point out, not only for their own sake, but also for the sake of those who are under their care and for the glory of God, that these men are what they are. James chapter 5 verse 1. Come now you rich. Weep and howl of your, for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. And he continues that for many verses. Why? Because he hates these men? No. Because God has given him a true love for these men. And for their and for the ones that He cares for. Should we do it with somewhat of a deadpan type of mentality? Should we be indifferent and apathetic? Should we be raising our fists and somewhat taking delight in these things? I would say no. Paul says in the same chapter in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, 
And now tell you even weeping. Tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. That we do this not with delight in our souls, but with the love of God, overwhelming, knowing that had God's grace not been extended to us, had not someone came and been plain with me, um, then I too would be lost. Why do we do this? We would do this out of humility because of the love that we have for the gospel of the grace of God. And that's what he continues to talk about there. Give you one last, of applica- one last line of application. Paul sees the danger of the church slipping into this heresy. Um, how does he instruct them to guard against deviations in that area? I would give you this last piece of application and instruction. One of the greatest ways that I could help you, instruct you, encourage you, exhort you to guard against deviations into such heresy, such false teaching, um, such bad places, um, is primarily, or at least one, to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. If men, I think, that that's, that's, I think that's part of the implication of why Paul says that here. He gives them that general instruction, but maybe it's not general at all. Maybe it's actually the key. Maybe it's one of the keys. To staying on the right path. If men would simply rejoice in the Lord, love God, exalt Christ, I have no, I have no doubt that they would be immune to such errors and deviations from Christ, and they would be able to spot them from a mile away. So we already knew that. You say that like every week. Tell us something else. I would simply say, it doesn't trouble me to remind you once more. (laughs) And it is safe for you. It is for your benefit. I'm telling you, because we need to hear it again, rejoice in the Lord. Exult in the Savior. Glory in the Gospel. And I'll guarantee you, in that environment, you will find no legalists. In that environment, you will find no lawlessness. You will immunize yourself against such diseases described in this chapter and fortify them to slay the dragons in the future. A man who glories in the cross, like the Apostle Paul in this passage of Scripture, is a man who will never glory in his own righteousness. Legalism will not survive in a type of environment, in a heart that glories and exults in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nor will he, he glory in his own shame. Nor will he exalt the sin in his life. A man who rejoices in Christ regularly and comes to the throne of grace, gathers with God's people and glories in the sovereign grace of God and the glory of the gospel is a man who will never glory in his own sin. So this day, revel in Jesus Christ and let men see it. Confront your enemies uh, with tears. Exhort the brethren and your children out of a true concern for their own souls. Why? Because you have a true love for them and a true love for the gospel. I don't know if I can do that. Listen, if you love them, you will. Love will compel you in the moment to run in front of a train to save your child. And there are trains running rampant throughout this world and they come by the name of prosperity preachers, teachers, and heretics. And we beg you to stand in the gap. Stand in the gap. The gospel will provoke you to do things that you would never have done before. Listen, that's what they need. I can tell you from personal experience. It's a man who is a legalist at heart. 
apart from God, gloried in his own self-righteousness. I didn't need someone to beat around the bush and make me feel better and build me up in my depravity. That was my problem. I needed someone to be frank with me. I needed someone to love me. I needed someone to give me the gospel. And when they did, God used it. And he's able to use it again to bring to himself every nation, tribe, and tongue for which he died. He is worthy. So let us not go out as headhunters. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. I don't want to hear anybody goes out and calling derogatory terms. But we should 95% of the time, 99% labor alongside in patience, long-suffering. Why? Because that's what Christ did with us. But when those men enter into another category, it is good, it is right, it is plain to express a righteous anger out of a love for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's okay to be plain with them. And it's okay to be plain with your children. And it's okay to be plain with the church. Why? Because the love that you have for them as expressed in the gospel. Let us balance these things well, church. Let us love God and love one another. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory that is in Christ. And we thank you for texts like these. Although in our natural man on many days we're not thankful. Um, but Father, when they're brought to light, you illuminate our hearts and souls. Um, we see them clearly. Uh, we see the love of God expressed for sinful men. Um, that it was not hatred for my own soul, Father, when I was confronted with my own sin. That it's not hatred for a doctor to sit before a patient and tell them that they have cancer. But it is hard. It's difficult. But it is so necessary. Father, that they may receive the treatment necessary. May we see men dying, women dying, Father, because of the cancer of sin and be moved to tears. Father, to love them, to be patient and long-suffering. Father, and when necessary, to be plain with men. Father, we need your spirit to teach us how to do this because we don't know how. And we need the leadership and the guidance of God himself. Because we don't know how by nature to handle these things and balance them in a way that's honoring to Christ. Father, help us to honor Christ. Help us to preach the gospel. Help us to love brothers and sisters. Help us to pour tears out over the lost, over the lost, Father. Break our hearts for our brethren according to the flesh, Father, and give us a boldness and a courage to stand on days we need to stand and to weep on days we need to weep. And rejoice on days that we need to rejoice. And Father, all the time, help us to rejoice in the Lord. May the world not take it away. May they not steal it, Father, and because of our infirmities and because of the opposition. Father, may we rejoice in the Lord even in the face of opposition. May we glory in Christ, Father, and see these things coming from a mile away. And head them off, Father, because of the love that we have for you and the love that we have for one another. Help us, Father, to exult in glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Number 98, my worth is not in what I own. And then we'll turn to um, the Lord's table for just a few moments. I encourage you to stay. It's just another 10 or 15 minutes. It's something that we regularly do here.
as we commune with one another and we commune with the Lord. Um, number 98, my worth is not in what I own. And the way that we want to do this is two verses, chorus, two verses, chorus, last verse, chorus. Two, one, two, one, one, one. Let us sing. Those of you visiting with us, we'll give a little instruction. I know that most of you have been here, but we do have visitors that are with us. And just um, want to tell you what we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, inform you as to what's going on here. Um, the Lord's table is um, in a similar vein. I'm in the same category as baptism. Most people understand what baptism is. Even if they're outside the faith or they're not familiar Christianity, baptism, is that ordinance that our Lord commands for believers to do, um, to publicly proclaim the, the spiritual reality that we have union with Christ. And Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1 speaks of us being buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And as a person comes to faith in Christ, they repent and believe, they too are, are joined in union with Christ. Um... And thus it's for believers only. Why? Because it's in those hearts that the realities are true. Um, in a similar vein, uh, the Lord's table also speaks of our union with Christ. 
It is something that our Lord orders us to do. Um, Paul takes up his instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 from the example that our Lord gave um, the night before he died. Um, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given it, thanks. He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That as we do this, we take bread and we take juice, fruit of the vine, and it represents, symbolizes um, these elements of Christ's death. His body, church, was broken for you. His blood, church, was shed for you. Old Testament New is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Paul personally applies these passages to you. He gets personal. Not just some um, amalgamous unknown blob throughout human history. What he says, he says, church, tonight, we take this bread and this cup, this body and this blood that was shed and broken for you. That Christ purchased you on behalf of God the Father by virtue of His blood. That that was the, the precious payment for your salvation was to take upon Himself the punishment and guilt of all mankind, including you. That as we take, our faith should be strengthened. Our spirit should be exalted. We should result. We should um, exult, rejoice in the Lord, because of the gospel message that is proclaimed. As we baptize a person and take them under the waters and bring them back out, the message of the gospel is being preached and proclaimed. And the same is true when we take the cup and the bread, His broken body, His shed blood for you, and God communes with us. Thus. And we would say just as much as baptism is for believers, that this ordinance too is just for believers. So if you're here today and you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're not saved, I would encourage you not to take. And again, this is not an expression of hate, and that I want to be exclusive. I mean, it is out of a love for the gospel and a love for you. I want you to know, and all the children here to know, that I haven't came to faith in Christ, that you need Jesus. You need His blood, you need His death, you need His burial, you need His resurrection, because without the shedding of blood there is no remission. You need to look to Christ. That's what this does. That if I fail in the sermon, oftentimes I do, maybe I did today, and may God take the bread and the cup and what is proclaimed here to verse 26, to proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. May the gospel be clearly proclaimed and tied with the Word in such a way that in you today, the gospel would become so clear that God would save your soul and you would come to Him by faith and repentance. So what we'll do is we'll come down. I'll come down. Nathan's already pouring the cups there. We do that, started that practice back in COVID when germs were everywhere and people didn't want me to um, contaminate the cup for an hour prior to taking it. It's probably a wise idea, you know, as I preach over top of here. Um, so we'll pour as we go. As you come, if you're a believer in good standing with the Lord, good standing with the church, that's, that's another element of this too. Um, we're not only communing with the Lord in Christ, one loaf, one bread, but we're communing with one another in Christ. That's what this is. That's what church is. You know, it's not only, when, when we speak of union with Christ, we're not only speaking of union with Jesus Christ in an ethereal sense or even in a personal sense alone. 
but Christ in his body are, un- are, are, are together. They're unified. So when we speak of union with Christ or covenant with Christ, the new covenant, this is where the term, the, the term new covenant community comes from. The church. That we are communing. When we commune in Christ, we commune with one another. Christ shares with us. And we share in Christ with one another. That's the glory and the, and the, the reality of what we're doing here. We're not just sharing with Christ. We're sharing Christ in and through and with one another. So I'm going to come down. Ms. Sharon's going to play number 343. Um, and if you're a believer, you've come to faith in Christ, um, you're in good standing with the Lord and with one another. There's no sins that need to be taken care of. I welcome you to come. And I welcome you to rejoice in God. As you partake of Christ, take him in by faith and repentance, um, not only in that initial point of salvation, but today. That we, that this is a, also a picture of feeding on Christ. And we need him daily. So let us feed on Christ in the moment as the gospel is proclaimed to our, our hearts. So you come. And then once you receive, go back to your seats. We'll read, bless the bread and the cup, and then we'll take together and we'll sing one more song and be dismissed. You come.
Amen. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Let us give thanks. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. But most of all, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he accomplished on our behalf. Father, we do not stand as men proud this morning. But we have nothing to boast in. Father, we may proclaim the glorious majesties of God and even speak plain in it sometimes. Father, but may it never be out of a heart of pride or arrogance. May it never be out of a position of abuse of authority. Father, may it be out of the grace that you've extended to us and that that grace would be extended, Father, to others as well. May you use this church to take this gospel message, Father, to pull men like that, men like us, Father, out of the depravity of their own sin, out of the darkness of their own soul, Father, to the light of the glorious gospel. Father, that's what this represents. So we praise you for that. Father, we pray that you'd strengthen our souls as we feed on Christ, even in this moment. Father, as we look to him by faith, Father, would we rid ourselves of our own selves. Father, will you humble our hearts as we... Um, take in the gospel in this moment, Father. Will you remind us of our depravity and our sin, Father? Would you remind us of the trenches that you reach down, span the gaps of time and history, Father, and even, even spirituality that you reach down, Father? Remind us that if we are anything today, we are only that by the grace of God. And Father, with the, with the woman, um, with the man, Father, who understands that he has been forgiven, Father, how much more shall he forgive? So, so, Father, deepen our understanding of the forgiveness that you extended, Father. And if you have to um, display and emphasize our sins in our own lives to accomplish that, then so be it, Father. May you humble our hearts under the gospel message in this moment, Father, may, that, we, that we may be empowered and emboldened to express that love with tears to a lost and a dying generation, Father, even the loftiest of, of them all. Father, we praise you for what is represented here, that we may experience, Father, union with Christ and union with one another. Father, I thank you for not only saving my soul, but the souls of those that are ever before me. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this body. I thank you for, Father, the display of the character of Christ. There's no doubt upon them, Father. And I thank you for the ministry that it has to my own soul. Father, as you've given me this task to care for them. So help me to care well, Father. Help me to love the bride. Help me to warn when necessary, Father. And help me to love undeniably and sacrificially. Father, we praise you for this time. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.